My name is Carl Anthony, and I work in the automotive industry in Detroit. Sometimes that work encompasses future vehicle technology, and that's what we talk about here, for the most part anyway. This is AutoVision News Radio. While I was in college at Iowa Western in the broadcasting program, I worked at the station on campus, 89.7 The River. As a concert-centric radio station and still one of the top rock stations today in the Omaha market, I had the opportunity to meet and talk with bands from all over. What I always found fascinating was how the music they wrote was many times connected to something larger. Songs and albums that were inspired by love and loss, hopes and fears, sometimes stemming from the experiences a musician had in their younger years. No matter what it was, there was emotion, and oftentimes a lot of it behind the music. In automotive, the same type of connections exist. Though our instruments and stages look and sound different, automotive does provide a platform for creative people to expand on their passions and enact the positive changes they wish to see in the world. From ADAS to electrification, this is Autovision News Radio with Carl Anthony in Detroit, Michigan. Alex Polanski is a mechanical engineer and the founder of the Detroit Autonomous Vehicle Group, often written as DAVG for short. Alex is a seasoned software solutions expert on data science, embedded systems, robotics, and AI and machine learning applications. Before automotive, Alex worked at NASA's Ames Research Center in Silicon Valley and has an affinity for playing tennis. He's also just a good guy. And I've thought that since I first met up with him for coffee in Royal Oak, Michigan back in 2017, after an introduction from Rob Stead, the managing director of Sense Media, organizers of the AutoSense and in-cabin conferences. Like the bands and musicians I used to work with back in my radio days, when you understand Alex's story and his past, the messaging and the mission behind the Detroit Autonomous Vehicle Group becomes immediately clear. Growing up in Russia in the 80s was a very interesting time. USSR, it was still USSR back then and it was falling apart. That caused political challenges inside the country. And so going to school traditionally, like we always have, was not the cool thing to do. The people who were in charge and the people who were at the top, they weren't necessarily the ones with the best education from the best college, the best degree. It was more of a corruption. And so as I grew up, things were falling apart. I was the younger child. And so I was growing up right in the middle of it. I had to kind of figure things out for myself. And so being born in a family of engineers, that's kind of like the natural path that was laid out for me is to be an engineer. However, years, I didn't put in the same kind of work. I, I'm not going to, I put in work, but in other areas, I focused more on organizing, leaving schools together with kids, like, yeah, running away from school or not doing homework and doing something else. This is my point of view. Uh, so please don't take it as the entire country's point of view. But engineers were not valued. Doctors were not valued. Teachers were not valued. The value system had completely changed. And so I went with it. On January 4th, 1991, the Washington Post reported that the number of Soviet citizens seeking political asylum in the United States quadrupled in 1990. 
I will leave a link in the show notes to this article along with another resource from the History Channel that explains how breadlines had become common throughout the 70s and the 80s among the families seeking asylum in the 90s were the Polanskis. And we moved to Silicon Valley, which was not our number one destination in the U.S. It, it kind of played out like that at the last moment because my dad had a friend who was in Silicon Valley and was willing to sponsor us. Looking back on it, that was by far the best decision because the other option was to move to maybe Boston, and this was 1994, so internet was up, up and coming. And my dad is a software developer, so he's a software engineer. Uh, Mom is a civil engineer. Grandpa was a, I would just call it World War II engineer. Grandma was also a space exploration and World War II engineer. And uh, in St. Petersburg, Russia, uh, which had the worst siege of all time, there was a lot of engineering influence kind of all around me. But I never kind of wanted to go in that direction because of when I was growing up and kind of how the country was built at the time. And so uh, it wasn't my first choice. I actually ended up being an engineer by passion. And I actually tried not to become an engineer. But because I am so passionate about, I found out that I am very passionate about the topics that I love, that I spent my entire life in, I ended up choosing it just by my own choice, because that's what I really wanted to do. Alex, when all this is going on and you're seeking asylum, how old are you at this time, roughly? When we moved, I was 12. And uh, here's a very interesting, at least in my opinion, tidbit is uh, my parents didn't tell me until the day before we moved. So obviously, you know, moving across the world, literally, it's not easy. And so there was a lot of planning that went into this move. But my parents didn't tell me until the day before, and they didn't tell me because of kind of, you know, the way I was kind of growing up. And if I had known in advance that we were moving, I may have gotten myself into more trouble than I needed to be in. I don't know when the process started. I think it started about two years before that, but I was not told. And uh, yeah, I moved to 12 in 1994. When you land in Silicon Valley, you come to California for the first time. What was it like when you were a kid? Oh, my God. So there were two things that stood out or three things that stood out right away. First, when I got off the plane, it was like 60 degrees. And in Russia, in St. Petersburg at that time, I think I left out of like minus 10 Fahrenheit or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I yeah. had my, you know, my light clothes on. Uh, which were still pretty heavy. And remember my first impression when I walked out of the airport, I was like, oh, I can't breathe. It's so hot. It's so hot. I can't <laughs> yeah. breathe. Yeah. My second impression was uh, that was the first time in my life I rode in a car that had power windows. That was blew my mind. I didn't have to crank a crank. And right. third thing, we didn't have bananas in Russia. So I ate all the bananas I possibly could. And that's how I passed that on the first evening. <laughs> in 2020, one poll on behalf of North American Van Lines conducted a survey of a thousand Americans. The majority of respondents in that survey ranked moving as one of the most stressful events that a person could experience, even over other things like divorce or switching careers. Now imagine making that move and you're 12 and you're moving across the world to escape political instability. For Alex, that first full day in the United States is something he will never forget. 
it was uh, actually a beautiful morning. And it was in February, end of February, I believe February 26th. I went outside and everything was just different. I honestly don't even really know how to explain it. It's like going to Mars, maybe. I mean, I've never been, but your entire world, because I only found out essentially, you know, by the time we were done traveling, it was like, let's call it two days. And it was very much a shock. And my life changed just on the spot. It, it's, you know, I went from being able to go to a corner store and buy cigarettes for my friends or get pretty much anything that I wanted to at the age of 12. And then here, not only, you know, I can't go to a corner store and buy cigarettes for my friends uh, and be cool. I don't even know how to ask. I didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any, like there was no language that I could communicate and that I could get my idea across, especially those first few days. Later on, you kind of catch on. San Francisco in that regard is very good because they have a lot of people from all over the world. So you can find somebody from your culture who speaks your language, but not in the first day. And so right, the biggest right. change was that first day. I mean, after that, you kind of start getting acquainted and kind of start understanding. But I went outside and it's like, you know, you look left, you look right where do you go? You've never been here. And there's no Google maps. There's no anything. Yeah. Like you just look around and you're like, it's a gorgeous morning, but what do I do now? Where do I go? And where do I start exploring? And, and what do I start doing? It's as big of a change. Like, I mean, that change still scares me. Like I'm still afraid to move places because I can't explain to you what it's like to feel when you walk into a classroom, so I started going to a middle school uh, about just about a month after we moved. I walked into a classroom and I thought I was speaking clear English, like I was choosing the correct words, but people were not reacting to what I was saying the way that I expected them to. And that was probably one of the most challenging things is you think that you're saying one thing, but people perceive it completely different. And that might be because you're actually saying something else than you think, but there's no more difficult thing in the world, I think, is when you think you're putting out an idea and it's not understood at all. And so you're speaking essentially two completely different languages. That was tough. Uh, it was hard to make friends. It was hard to go places. It was hard to go to the store. It was hard to do everything. Through Alex's formative years in California, he fell back on his love for cars, which started early in his life and are now fond memories of his childhood. It's during these same formative years that Alex begins to understand how automotive, in particular motorsports, can serve as a platform to enact real change in the world. So I've been into cars ever since I was born. I think a lot of it has to do with my Grandpa, who was, uh, he drove a tank in World War II. He was also an engineer for the Russian military. He was always into cars. Like we had tank engines in our house. Uh, I mean, my mom told me a funny story one time. She walks into a bath to take, uh, into the bathroom to take a shower and she finds a, uh, a tank engine in the bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and so our closet, the closets were full of tank parts. Uh, basically, we had him all over the place, but he was always into fixing his own car and he was good at driving. He made up his, I mean, just imagine a World War II tank driver uh, driving on the streets. You know, he doesn't follow the 
road rules. He goes right. wherever he thinks the car will make it. Right, right. And I like that. <laughs> he was very free <laughs> at mind. And uh, I got into cars ever since I can remember. And so I always kept up with it. First, it was just helping out my grandpa, just bringing a wrench or getting a screw or a bolt or a knot or whatever I could do to help out, I would help out. And then it just kind of kept on transitioning that I wanted started, you know, kind of by the time I turned six, I think I started following Formula One and World Rally Championships. Art and Senna was an idol of mine for a few reasons. I think, you know, his performance on the track speaks for itself, but he brought a lot of exposure to Brazil, which it didn't have before then. And so I saw that motorsports can be a tool for change. Despite having little interest in school in the USSR and then having a rough go in the classroom again in the United States, Alex eventually found a stride that was uniquely his own. Later on, I got a job at a dealership, saved enough money to start going to a racing school. And then one thing led to another. And that's how I ended up with an uh, engineering degree, because I was like, I love cars. I don't, you know, I don't love selling them, but I love building them and bringing technology forward and making them be better, which is a broad term, but uh, safer, more user friendly, just better cars and technology. And lucky for me, cars have every type of technology in them. Uh, at the time, I chose mechanical engineering because this was around 2001 and mechanical engineering was still more prominent. And because tougher childhood and not wanting to be like parents, I basically specifically said, I'm not going to go into computer science as a major. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it was a natural progression. For me, it was a natural progression of liking cars, then liking to drive cars, then switching entire life, but still having a passion and clinging on to that passion to save my life, essentially. And then the only path I really saw was to go into engineering to continue to drive change, really, in automotive. I moved to the Detroit area from Sioux Falls, South Dakota in October 2013. I was living near the Flat Rock assembly plant where they build the Mustang, and I had never seen anything that big in my entire life. It was pretty incredible. Uh, but in those early years, it was hard for me. I regretted coming here. In fact, I hated Detroit. I really did. But thanks to some good people around me, I was eventually able to get into Jackson Dawson, and things slowly took off from there. But I wrestled with coming here for a long time. One of the things that helped me in those early years was when I would take walks downtown by Comerica Park or through Campus Marshes or through the old GM World show floor at the Rensen. I don't know if you remember that, but this is before it was remodeled. It looked way different back then. So I'd walk the GM World show floor, then out through the Winter Garden and then to the Detroit Riverfront. And that helped me get a sense of the city, and I slowly fell in love with Detroit. And by early 2015, I had met Danielle, and still at that time, it, it was rough, so she was talking me off some ledges back then when we were first dating, but she said something back then that's always stuck with me. She said that Detroit gets in your blood, and it's the same with cars, so that if automotive is all you can think about doing for a living, then the Motor City is a good place to be. And for Alex, it was very much the same. He still had that fear of, of moving from when he was a kid, but the love of cars just drew him right to Detroit. I don't know. Something inside of me really said that if I want to be in the epicenter of automotive, I have to move to one of three places. 
And that those three places are Japan, Germany, or Detroit specifically. Right. Uh, today, Silicon Valley has taken on a different role in automotive, but not in 2010, not in 2010 or 11, which uh, 2011 is which I moved. And so I just kind of randomly went and applied for a job. And then I got some interviews and I was flown out and it came out here in early spring. So it was still kind of late winter. And I didn't like the weather, but I liked what I saw in terms of the labs. So the interview was at TRW at the time. I said, okay, you know, if this works out, then I go. And uh, it was one of the few jobs that I applied to in Detroit. And that job did not work out. So I ended up still moving to Detroit with no job, no friends, no family out here. My mom helped me out with finding a place to stay uh, while I look for a job. So I, I was very much on a limited time budget. And uh, within three weeks, I was able to find a job. And honestly, it was drop dead decision because I had to either and I couldn't really go back anymore because I pretty much moved out and we were done, you know, with parents. And they're like, OK, you go on your way like a cliche story, a briefcase and nothing else. And just started looking for work. And I found a job at FEV as a resident engineer at uh, OEM. In February 2017, while working on some continuing education courses, Alex began thinking about starting his own working group, one focused on self-driving cars, but one in which members could apply their skills to real-world applications. At the time, nothing like DAVG existed in the Detroit area. There wasn't a place where automotive enthusiasts and professionals could work together on automation systems in a type of learning environment. And the more Alex thought about it, the more it made sense to start something. DAVG was founded on the principle of people coming together and sharing uh, information and learning while having fun. That was the whole idea behind DAVG. And it was founded while attending uh, Udacity self-driving car nano degree program. And I was one of the first cohorts, maybe like third. And uh, I just quickly realized how complicated this stuff was and how much there is to it. Uh, very quickly, after just a couple, a few days, I was like, we need a group. We need a group of people who share similar passions, similar interests, who come together and they work on these projects together. The whole idea was that to build a space a safe space and a comfortable space for people to come, learn, and be friends and make friends. No one person can solve all the problems, but a group of people can do a whole lot more. And so when I saw how much there was to the self-driving car technology and how many different disciplines there are, I just immediately was like, I want to meet more people. I want to meet more experts on these different topics. and. I want to I want to do it in a fun way. Among the philosophies of DAVG is to help members feel welcome and encouraged to share their ideas. DAVG is a safe environment where members can learn from one another. It's okay to struggle with your self-driving car project because the group is there to help you get it running. Alex also wants DAVG to provide real-world skills that members can use outside the usual Saturday meetups. One of the biggest is the ability to adapt to change. 
which the automotive industry will see more of in the next 10 years than in the last 50. Everything is changing so fast. You just, you have to be able to adapt very quickly. And those are the people who are going to probably excel more than average. I want to build that community of where you can go and where you can learn these skills. Some people come into the group and then they're so scared. There's already people there. They're very afraid of, oh my God, you know, what is this person going to think of me? What are they going to think of me? And my job as the leader of the group is to invite, to welcome those newcomers and to make them feel at home, to make them feel like it's okay to learn something new. You don't have to be afraid of it. I think that skill set is extremely important in today's world. I mean, just look at what's going on in autonomous driving, which I think is the most high-tech industry today. Things are changing all the time. You know, we were supposed to be at level five autonomy like two years ago, right? Where are we now? We're still talking about, hey, how are we going to do the two plus? And so there's just so many changes coming at us all the time. And, and they're big changes. If you work in any of these industries where your validation cycle is, you know, multiple years, such as aerospace, automotive, and the industry is being pushed to develop, to shrink the uh, cycle times and to be able to handle changes faster and better. Because whenever we make a change, we have to revalidate everything, right? And so when somebody comes to you, a customer uh, comes to you and says, hey, I want this change, but I don't want it in a year and a half like it's typically been. I want it in, you know, a month. Instead of saying, hey, this is not possible, you have to accept the change and you have to figure out a way to cope with it and to make it happen. On a warm day in May 2005, my program director at 89.7 The River, Sophia John, pulled me aside and asked if I'd like to do the afternoon show that coming summer from 2 until 6 p.m. every day. It was a tremendous opportunity that eventually helped me land my first full-time radio gig after college when I graduated a year later in 2006. With her encouragement, I taped every show I did that summer. It was still cassette tape back then. But I condensed three months' worth of airtime into a three-minute demo tape that I sent to other radio stations with my resume and cover letter in the months leading up to graduation. And it worked. That tape got me hired at KEZO, Z92, Omaha's rock station, then owned by Journal Broadcast Group. But this was because Sophia encouraged me to be hands-on with broadcasting, to not leave things with my classes alone, but to get into the studio and produce audio to schedule music, to sign up for as many overnight weekend on-air shifts as I could. Thank you, Rockstar Energy Drink, for getting me through some of that. To this day, she is the greatest mentor I've ever had. Sophia knew where to draw the line between doing all you could in the classroom and then stepping over and transitioning to the real world. And DAVG functions in a similar way. And I know multiple people who have gone and gotten jobs not because of their degree, but because of their personal projects, including myself. And so we provide, it's almost like, a, I wouldn't call it an alternative learning platform, but it, it's a different way of learning that I think is more suitable for a lot of people who are doers, who want to do things. They don't want to ju just sit in the classroom and learn theory. Uh, they want to actually implement it. And, and again, that's actually how the group started because we were learning about the theory at Udacity, but then it's like, well, how can we implement it? We're not going to buy a full-size self-driving car, especially in 2018. 
So we went to Micro Center over here and we bought a $20 RC car and we started porting our code onto it. We did not succeed. In the end, we succeeded, but with a different approach. And we had to make a lot of changes. We spent a year trying to change the code and didn't work. And then we found DIY Robocars Global Community, which we were the first one to become a chapter of, the Detroit chapter of. And uh, uh, really from there, things took off. Before our conversation came to a close, I asked Alex what legacy he would like to leave one day. When I think about what do I want to leave on this planet after I leave, besides my kids, I would like to be able to change the world. Like a kid like myself coming from a school, uh, schooling background where I actually didn't go to school for many years and I had to catch up, play catch up with people like later on in my life i realized when i started finally like paying attention in school i realized i didn't know how to take organized notes how am i supposed to you know learn anything i go home i read my notes i don't understand anything i wrote <laughs> and i had to learn how to take notes and how to get better at all these things i wish i had a group like this where i could come in and people would understand me i didn't People didn't understand me in college. They're like, how could you have not known this? Like, we all learned it, you know? We all did it. And I'm like, well, I can't, you know, I'm not gonna go into my entire life story right now, but I didn't learn it, okay? Why are you like making fun of me for it? I didn't want that experience. I don't want that experience. And honest, I don't want that experience for anybody. I want to leave a legacy of creating a space and maybe it's just an arm of education or something like that, but to offer an educational path for kids to go where they can feel safe and they can work on projects while learning. And so I want to leave the legacy of creating a safe space for anybody to go in and start experimenting and learning about the latest technologies. To learn more about the Detroit Autonomous Vehicle Group, see the links in the show notes. AutoVision News Radio is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and more. In the Motor City, alongside Alex Polonsky, I'm Carl Anthony, AutoVision News Radio.